maybe for some of you a, a while back to, to think back to you know, history classes and, and so on that maybe you took in school or in college or whatever, but um, do, do you have any thoughts about who might have been the most famous ancient ruler? You know, who, who's the most perhaps notorious uh, ancient ruler? You know, if you, if you had to be on a game show or whatever and they were to ask you, who's the most you know, prominent ancient ruler that there is? Uh, you might come up with names like Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great. But I think there's an argument to make that the, the most famous, the ancient ruler, the one whose name consistently comes up and you know, on, is on people's lips, is not any of these emperors or Caesars, but, uh, but actually a, a, a small provincial governor of a dusty, kind of out-of-the-way area called Judea. 2,000 years ago. His name is Pontius Pilate. And every single week all over the world, people remember his name because we use his name in the Apostles' Creed, right? Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And he's forever remembered that way. Jesus suffered under the way that Pontius Pilate abused his power and so as Don prayed, we're going we're to talk about how should we view power? How should we view its abuse? How should we properly view its, its healthy uses? So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read and uh, start in chapter 15 now, um, verses 1 through 5. And as soon as it was morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. That's the Sanhedrin, by the way. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Lord, would you please bless the reading and the hearing and the receiving of your word this morning? Uh, we need to be reminded of your power on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, please be seated. <clears throat> We're going to talk about the, the governor of Judea and the king of the Jews um, as we talk about power in Palestine and the abuse of power and the, and the use of power. Um, so we're going to begin with, with Pilate, right? So um, Jesus spends the, the pre-dawn hours of, uh, of Friday morning. He's standing trial before the, the Sanhedrin. Uh, that's the Jewish Supreme Court. You know, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests, they, they're holding a, holding a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the, and, the, and the whole council. And they find him guilty of blasphemy. And Kyle covered that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they, they find him guilty of a religious offense, a religious crime that's worthy of death. And, uh, and they march Jesus off to Pilate, and Pilate's the Roman political governor, and they're, they're seeking the death penalty. They can't impose the death penalty because they're under Roman political government. Only Rome can enforce the, the death penalty. So um, 
we get a little bit uh, more about the nature of the, the, the religious crime that, that Jesus committed. You know, back in chapter 14, uh, Jesus was before Caiaphas, the high priest, and Caiaphas asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy, right? And so they all condemned him as deserving of death. And they, they take him off to, to Pilate. So Pilate is this, um, he, he's a governor and, and it's a small you know, area that, that he's the governor of for, for about 10 years, from 26 to 36 AD. Uh, and he, his normal residence would have been in Caesarea, named after Caesar. Uh, that's the seat of government in Judea. But he's in Jerusalem during Passover to keep the peace, uh, to keep any riots from breaking out. This is a, a time of you know, real spiritual fervor and nationalism among God's people, and they want to throw off Rome. And so you know, Rome's got their thumb on the Jewish community, especially during these feasts and times of you know, great fervor and, and adrenaline. Um, and so that's why Pilate is in Jerusalem. And they go to Pilate, uh, and, and this is this, you know, you know, otherwise, apart from the Apostles' Creed, you know, and, and what we read in the Bible, nobody would really know about him. The only historical record we have of him besides the Gospels is a stone that was excavated in Caesarea, uh, and it's on display in a museum. You can see it today at, uh, what museum is it? Uh, I don't even remember. But it's got his title and his name on it, you know, Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea. Uh, so archaeology attests to the historicity of this, of this man and, and his, his you know, realm and, and so on. And yet he plays such a vital, prominent role in what we you know, rehearse every, every year um, at Easter and certainly you know, through series like these as we're studying the Gospels, as we see Jesus standing trial and, and, and enduring injustice at the hands of a political pragmatist. Um, you know, I, I think there's, there's a lot of uh, different opinions about Pilate. Some are, uh, tend to vilify him. You know, he's the one that condemned uh, an innocent man, and others want to be sympathetic to him. There's even some traditions in, in the church where, yeah, feast days for Pilate, because they think, you know, well, he was sympathetic. He wanted to let Jesus off, but he was sort of controlled by the crowds and so on. So there's lots of different opinions about Pilate, but I think what that leads us to, to, to conclude is that he just was in it for himself and he would do whatever it took to maintain his power. Pilate used his power to maintain his power, and that's, that's typical. A lot of people in power are using their power to stay in power, right? And Pilate's no different. Um, you know, Pilate uh, seems like this one who's who's trying to let Jesus off, but he could be very, very harsh and very, very unjust. And his only goal, again, is just to, to maintain his position. Uh, in Luke 13, we read about there were uh, th this incident where there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. You know, he can be ruthless and also, you know, stand for what seems to be right complicated person. So 
That's the governor of Judea. Let's talk about the king of the Jews. Pilate asked Jesus in verse 2, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. So kind of a cryptic response by Jesus, but basically an affirmation. Sure, you know, in other words. And the Sanhedrin, who had just, just accused and convicted Jesus of blasphemy in, in their court, are now in a Roman court, as it were. It's really just one judge, Pilate. They're in this Roman uh, arena of justice. And, and now they're changing their story. Before Pilate, they don't accuse Jesus of a religious offense. They accuse him of a political offense, of treason. So they're switching their story um, in, in this blatant demonstration of injustice. You don't switch convictions, you don't switch indictments, but John, John 19 gives us an insight into how they're switching and, and trying to manipulate Pilate. Uh, the Sanhedrin uh, took Jesus to Pilate, and from then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so what do you think Pilate's feeling and thinking at this point when he's being confronted with, oh no, some report's going to go to Rome that I did something inconsistent with allegiance to Caesar. Um, that, that, that cannot happen. And so Pilate, the pragmatist, is, is again going to just exercise his power and condemn an innocent man in order to maintain his power. So here you get one of those episodes in the Bible where you can't avoid politics and religion mingling. I, I know we like to keep those things separate, but they, they, they're not, we don't think they're supposed to together, but they collide unavoidably here. Um, Mark wants us to know unequivocally that Jesus is the king of the Jews. It's in, in chapter 15, just the first kind of part of chapter 15, verses 1 through 32, Jesus is called the king of the Jews six times. We're not to miss this point. That, that he is this uh, king who's being executed for being a rival ruler, not only to Pilate, but ultimately to Caesar. You can't have a rival to the emperor. And so Jesus, this upstart king of the Jews, has to be gotten rid of because there can't be two kings. There can't be two supreme rulers. There can only be one whose authority is absolute, right? You can only give your ultimate allegiance to one entity, not two. You can't be divided. And so Mark's Mark's readers, and we, we've covered this periodically, but if you're new, uh, we've, we've noticed that Mark is writing to a particular audience. He's got a particular group of people in mind, and his audience, very, very likely, most of the scholars agree, is back in Rome. He wrote this gospel, and it was originally delivered. The very first you know, manuscript of this was delivered to the, the church, the suffering, persecuted church in Rome under Caesar. And Mark is, is reminding them of who the real king is. Who's the real emperor, right? So would they, would they acknowledge the true king, uh, the king of the Jews, or, or would uh, the church back in Rome bow 
and capitulate to, to the false king. Um, so Mark's trying to build their faith and, and, and stoke their courage. Uh, and we have the same question, I think, addressed to us, like, who are we going to bow to? Who's our king, right? Like we say Jesus, that's, that's sort of our default. I mean, if you're in church, sort of you, you have some affinity for Jesus. And if you're new to church or new to the Bible, you're, you're, we're, we're glad you're here asking questions and trying to figure out who is Jesus, right? Well, he claims to be this king. And so if we're going to confess him as king, it's got to be more than, than just sort of this creed or this, this default religious statement. Uh, it's got to affect our lives. And people need to recognize, they should be able to see with our lives and the things that we say and the things that we do and don't do, who do you bow to? That ought to be recognizable. People ought to hear with our words, be able to, to see and to hear who we bow to, who is our king, right? Do you talk about Jesus? Do the people around you at work or at school in your, on, in your neighborhood, do they know that Jesus is your king? Or are you kind of being an anonymous Christian? There really is no such thing. So, even in the words that we use, do we talk about Jesus? Do people know who our king is? Or, or how about in the actions that, that you know, we demonstrate? Does, do our, our actions testify that, that Jesus is our king? Like, do our lives look like an answer to the prayer that we make all the time, thy will be done, or do our lives look like sort of the opposite of that, my, my will uh, be done? Um, other, other things, like our conflicts, do they testify that Jesus is our king? Do we listen? Do we love our opponent, even our enemy? Do we turn the other cheek? Do we bless instead of curse? Like, there's all these different ways that, that our lives and our actions and our words and, and so on uh, will testify or not uh, to, to who our true king is. But there's one really, really remarkable and, and perhaps even most prominent way that, that our lives can testify to who our king is, who our ultimate allegiance is toward. And it really has to do with our use of power. How do we use our influence? Who are we pointing to? How are we trying to, to shape in, in our environment and the people around us? What are we doing in, in the use of our influence to, to help people see Jesus? Do we use our power in ways that bless people or in ways that tear them down? And that's going to be this incredible indicator of who our true king is. Are we using our power the way that Jesus used his power? Or do we use our power in ways that are self-serving? So, uh, we get all kinds of examples of abuse of power here. Um, we get power politics and power religion. Uh, I'll, I'll reference John's gospel, chapter 19 here for a second, just to give you a little more insight into this scene, because Mark gives us a truncated, just, a, just five verses really of Jesus before Pilate, but um, the other gospels share more detail. So for instance, John records how Pilate says to Jesus, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. So Pilate is appealing to the authority that Caesar had given to him, 
And the authority that Caesar has is the authority of the Roman Empire. He's the emperor. Uh, and at this time, this is, this is near the, the crest of the, the Roman Empire, the pinnacle of, of this you know, remarkable global uh, kingdom. Um, there's a map here I want to show you of just like how vast the Roman Empire really was all around the, the Mediterranean, right? So in the north, it goes all the way up to England. You can still, you can go to London and see Roman ruins, Roman ruins in England. It goes all the way south to Africa. It goes all the way to the east to Iraq, you know, and, and this was, this was 2,000 years ago, like before they could fly or send emails or whatever. Like, how did they do this? To have that vast of a kingdom and to, to have a consistent reign over that many people and that many miles is mind-boggling. And, you know, historians refer to this time that the greatness of the Roman Empire is the Pax Romana, like the Roman peace, because because Rome had, had exercised its government and its influence over so much, there was a, a consistency, right, to the laws, a consistency to the, the reign. And so, for the most part, there was peace. And under that peace, under the Pax Romana, there was all kinds of, of, of things that we still look back today and we marvel at uh, the, the, just the technology. Um, Roads don't seem like a very technological thing to us, but back then they were. Like, Roman roads were a marvel. All roads led to Rome. There were miles and miles and miles of, of Roman roads, some of, that are still used today because they were so well built. And the architecture and the advances uh, in, they invented concrete. So every domed building, every arch that you see still today, 2,000 years ago, goes back to kind of the Pax Romana and their you know, spread of architecture and industry and so on. Uh, communication, law, all these things flourished under the Pax Romana, but um, came at a price. Pilots, authority. His reign, his power was his because the Roman Empire expanded through violence, through crucifixions. Tens of thousands of crucifixions, some estimates, hundreds of thousands of crucified people, enemies of Rome, put on display to, to, to show all these other people what happens when you resist the emperor's power. So Pilate says to Jesus, do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you. Pilate's a pragmatist. He's using his power to stay in power. He's abusing his power to stay in power. 
Ultimately, Pilate was removed as a governor uh, and after his 10 years in power because he abused his power in such a way that uh, Rome did hear about it and said, no, that's too much. Uh, he had slaughtered a bunch of Samaritans in, uh, near Mount Gerizim. Uh, some accounts even say they were unarmed. Josephus said they were armed. It's hard to know for sure, but regardless, it was too much. He overreached. He used his power in, in a way that was too powerful. He abused his power uh, in a way that was undeniable, and so he had to go. So Pilate's abusing his political power. That wasn't the only abuse of power. Obviously, the Sanhedrin, right? They're abusing their, their spiritual power, their religious power. Um, again, John's gospel, this time chapter 18, one chapter earlier, the, the Sanhedrin led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, Pilate's headquarters, so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. They're trying to remain ceremonially pure, even though they're, they're committing this incredible injustice of delivering an innocent man over to, to Pilate to be executed. They're trying to, you know, pull the hems of their skirts in so that they don't get dirty. Abusing their power. You look at these religious leaders, they're convincing themselves that they are like angels, but they're acting like demons. So they're convicting Jesus on the basis of false witnesses. They're changing the indictment as we already looked at. And they, they lied and they told Pilate that Jesus was forbidding his followers from paying taxes to Caesar. Do you remember that whole episode? Right? So Luke records how uh, the, the Sanhedrin are telling Pilate that we have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king, and he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place, and you know, lying about the things that Jesus was teaching the people. Yeah, he's certainly stirring up the people about the kingdom of God, but he's not telling them to, to, to you know, not pay taxes. In fact, Jesus did the very opposite. And we looked at this back in chapter 12 in Mark's gospel when you know, people are trying to trap Jesus, and they come up to him with this conundrum. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they think they've got him. We've trapped him. Because if he says, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, then, you know, all of the, uh, the faithful who want to throw off from him are going to reject him. Or if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then we can get him, and we can accuse him of, you know, re rejecting uh, Roman rule. So they think they've trapped him. And Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why put me to the test and bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him the coin and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And his accusers said, well, it's Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, oh, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Like he got out of the trap. How did he do that? But he certainly was not telling people not to pay tribute to Caesar. In fact, he did the exact opposite. So so the Sanhedrin is using their religious power to maintain their power. Why do they want to get rid of Jesus? Because he's a threat to their power and their influence. People are following Jesus. They're not following us. Look at all, look at, look at them. They're all going after him, and we have to stop this because we have to stay in power. And they're, they're abusing their power to stay 
and power. So you got religious or political power being abused and, and spiritual power uh, being abused. And this, this isn't anything new, right? Like, so when we see religious leaders and presidents of Christian universities abusing their power, we don't go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. That's been happening for thousands of years. Thousands of years. So how do we use our power? As, as we kind of wrap up these thoughts, like how should we use our power? We don't want to abuse our power. We want to, we want to use it well. Um, Jesus is standing silent before Pilate. Uh, Matthew 27 gives us a little bit more detail. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, Jesus gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Like, Mark, Matthew gives us the superlative. Pilate's greatly amazed. Who doesn't try to defend themselves? Who doesn't try to make some kind of, you know, advocacy for themselves and speak up and, and deny the charges or you know, kind of testify on behalf of themselves. Like, who, who stays silent? Was Jesus just being noble? Was he somehow just trying to prove something? Like Proverbs 17 says, whoever uh, restrains his words has knowledge. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. Is, is Jesus just trying to to look wise, um, da Vinci has, Leonardo da Vinci had a quote, um, nothing strengthens authority so much as silence. Is Jesus just trying to appear proud, stoic, authoritative? Well, we do know that his silence was at least in fulfillment of, of the prophecies about the suffering servant, the one who suffered under Pontius Pilate, right? And, and we read in Isaiah that he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he open not his mouth and like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep that is before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth why was Jesus silent why didn't he defend himself you know and I know that's the first thing we want to do when we feel somebody falsely accusing us we want to defend ourselves we want to say that's not true here's what's true let me explain but Jesus didn't do any of that because when his silence what he was doing was he was absorbing our sin and he was taking the first step toward enduring the silence of the grave that would put an end to all the, the, the din of, of sin, that would put an end to the, 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 the loudness of accusation and condemnation and judgment against our sin. He would silence it forever in the silence of the grave. And as he's standing before Pilate, that's the, that's the foretaste of the silence that would absorb like a, like a sponge all of the noise the back and forth of the accusation and defense and so on and so on. Nobody's innocent, and yet everybody's a victim. And this goes on and on and on. Jesus silenced the law's just condemnation against our sin, and Jesus silenced Satan's empty accusations against us, and 
Jesus silenced the shame and the blame of our guilty consciences, even though we're forgiven. He silenced all of that by remaining silent, by being that, that innocent lamb to stand in our place. So, so we've looked at you know, how power gets abused in politics and in religion, how Pilate abuses power and the Sanhedrin abused his power. Some of you here have been on the receiving end of people abusing their power over you. You know what it feels like uh, to be a, a, a pawn in somebody else's game, to be thrown under the bus for somebody else's gain, to be hurt, so somebody else can make a bigger name for themselves. Jesus stood in your place, and he understands that. He's been on the receiving end of that abuse of power, and he is coming again to hold accountable all those in power, to, to provide a reckoning for all abuses of power. You're not alone, and there is justice in this universe. We might tend to think uh, that only those who are in power you know, can abuse power, but the truth is that all of us have power. You don't have to have a formal position to have power. Uh, the truth is that every single human being has uh, God's image imprinted on them, and, and God is powerful, right? His is the, 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 the glory and the power and the kingdom forever. So he is power, and because you bear his image, you have power. No matter what, no matter how old you are, no matter you know, male or female, no matter how much money you have, no matter you know, how much you think you may not have any influence at all, but you do. Anytime you're with other people, you and I have influence over them, for good or for ill. And the truth is also that none of us have exercised our influence over others with perfectly pure hearts. We've all taken advantage of others. We've used our power to kind of stay in power, to expand our power, to expand our influence, to get what we want, to have our way. And Jesus stood in our place too. He stood in the place of those who've been on the receiving end of abuses of power, and he stood in the place of those who have been on the, the giving end of that, to take our sin away, to remove our condemnation, to silence the law. For all those who repent and who trust in him and who believe in him, the one who justifies sinners, even those who abuse their power, and that's all of us. So... Our words have power, but so does our silence. And 
Jesus died in our place so that we could start living a life that's shaped by the Holy Spirit as new creations that use our power in ways that bless others, that, that can even use our silence in powerful ways, just as, as Jesus used his silence in powerful ways, right? So Proverbs 15 says that a soft answer turns away wrath, like sometimes silence is the best answer to anger. A harsh word stirs up anger. Uh, James 1 says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, right? Slow to speak, be silent, listen. Slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And those are ways that we can even use our silence in powerful ways to bring blessing. There's powerful silence, and then lastly, there's, there's powerful service. Like, how do we use our power? First, we've got to recognize that God has empowered each of us, right? That's something that's maybe a new thought to some of you. I didn't know I had power. I didn't know I had influence. Yes, you do. So we've each got within us the capacity to shape our environment, even to, to shape others. We, and we can't not have that power. It's, it's not, you, you can't not have it. You, you, you can't run away from it. You can't avoid it. Each of us has this influence. So let me show you how this works sometimes. Uh, I, I don't know if this is a good example or not, but uh, Michael and Sarah are, are twins. Uh, they both turned uh, 23 uh, last week. And so we were with Michael moving him back into to his last semester at William Mary and gave him his birthday presents. And what he's wanted, uh, he, he likes to cook. He likes to bake. He's, he's awesome in the kitchen. He wanted real knives. Like, not, not the crappy knives that, that we have in our, we call it the drawer of death at home, our, our knife drawer. This is one of the instruments of death in our knife drawer. Um, and and this, is, this is what you call a cheap knife. It's our best knife, but it's still a cheap knife. And we got, Michael, good knives. Like a, a chef's knife like this. Uh, what is it? Uh, a Wusthof. I've never heard of this brand, but they're German knives. Been around for hundreds of years. Wusthof knives are the go-to brand for any professional chef and what we recommend for the home cook too. They are forged from a single piece of high carbon stainless steel, you know, which runs all the way down through the handle. And the classic range are sturdy in the hand, resilient and dead sharp. Dead sharp which is scary, right? Because these knives have the, the ability, the power to hurt. You can accidentally cut yourself pretty easily. And like, so, so we were scared. Michael, these are really sharp knives. Don't hurt yourself. And he's like, no, come on, you guys. The, this knife is more dangerous than Michael's knife because this is a dull knife. And if you're, if, you're, if you're using a dull knife, you're inclined to use more pressure and that can make your knife slip and that's how accidents happen. So it's sort of like if, we don't, if we're not aware that we have power, we're actually kind of dangerous. We have to know that we have a sharp edge. A sharp edge that, by the way, if you've got a good knife, you can do wonderful things with a sharp knife. You can bless people and make beautiful meals for them. And take care of your family. Take care of your friends and feed them and care for them. And that's how we can use our power, the sharp edge of that influence that God's given each of us. So, you know, just 
thinking about this. Are, some, some people are power hungry, right? Like we know there are people out there who want more and more power and they just want to you know, increase their influence. They want to control others. They want to call the shots and, and they're sort of looking for leverage and they're applying this pressure. They want to be in charge. And there just seems to be more of that as we go to work or at school, seeing people jockeying for position and influence or, you know, as we see it on social media with people looking for more likes, more, more views. We see it, you know, in politics, people looking for more and more power. We see it at home, you know, in all the relationships at home. So sadly, they're just, these aren't just some people. They're all of us, right? Like, we're all looking for power. We've, all, we've covered that. But some of you aren't uncomfortable with this notion of power. Like this, this doesn't feel right to you. It, does, it bothers you to admit that you've got power because maybe you've just seen it being abused so much in selfish, manipulative ways. You don't want to have anything to, to do with it, but you can't avoid it. It's something God-given. It's a real question is just how are you going to use it? I'm scared of this knife. But how are you going to use it? Are we going to use it well or are we going to we're going to abuse it. Use it well. Use your power well. Andy Crouch in his book, Playing God, redeeming the gift of power, says power is not the opposite of servanthood. Rather, servanthood is the very purpose of power. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Don't have people suffer under your power. Use your power to empower Others, use your power to come to the aid and the assistance of those who need to be lifted up. Use your power to bless, not to curse. Use your power to serve and to show the reality of the King of Kings, not just the King of the Jews, but the King of Kings who came and used his power to bless us. So we'll close with Matthew, Mark chapter 10. We've looked at this several months ago. Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me pray. Lord, pray that you would find us faithful as your people, that, that, that people would see in your people the reality that you are our king, that they would hear it in our words, that they would see it in our actions, they would notice it even in our conflict, but, but more than anything, they would see it in the way that we use our power, the way that we influence others, the, the, the ways that we're trying to shape our environments, caring for those who are in need, lifting up those who are powerless. Lord, we pray that the gospel would so change us that it wouldn't be our desire to, to have more power for ourselves, but that you would get glory, that people would recognize your power in us and through us, and that they would bow their knee to you, the true King of Kings, just as you've inclined us to. And that you did that. You won us because you loved us. Because you used your power to save us. In Jesus' name we pray.